All right, grab your Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. By the way, I think Ben said it earlier, but yeah, we did, we did uh, go to man camp last Sunday, and about 35 of us, and, and uh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was, it was a fan. God really met us. If you get a chance to sign up for that next year, do it, and do it early, because the camp was completely sold out. In fact, they fit 30 extra guys in, um, so yeah. All right. <clears throat> the conscience. Pause for effect. Oh, I wasn't supposed to read that. Sorry. Uh, just kidding. Sorry. Oh. It's a bad joke. Okay. The conscience. I want to talk about the conscience this morning. In fact, the text wants to talk about the conscience this morning. The conscience is our, uh, our internal mechanism for determining right and wrong, good from evil, and true from false. And you know, you guys all got one when you were born, kind of like a body, okay? When you were born, you get a body. And not all, not all the bodies are the same, but you get a body, and it's kind of, you can, you can decide if you want to nourish and cherish and build up that body, or you can decide if you want to totally destroy and, and totally, you know, uh, ruin that body, okay? And, and a lot of us have done a lot of both, probably, in our lives, if we're being honest, right? Uh, and, and the same is true of a conscience. You're given a conscience when you're born. It's, 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 it's built into you, and you can cherish it, and you can build it up, or you can destroy it. The problem is that our conscience, all of us, is broken. It's, it's fallen. It, it works but it's broken. You guys ever have something that works, but it's broken? I have a lot of things that work that are broken. In fact, I have so many written down here, I have to choose uh, which one to, oh yeah, I'll use this one. So in our house that we just moved into, we have um, all these smoke detectors and they're broken. So here's the problem with the smoke detectors. They'll randomly go off, all of them. And, and then we, we turn them off and then they go off again every five minutes. And then you turn them off and then they go off again and they do it over and over and over and over again. So the only way that we could figure out how to make them stop is to just disconnect them and leave them disconnected. So um, yeah, so that's a problem, right? Um, they, they work, like if I was to like light a fire under them, they would tell me, but they're also broken. So the problem with things that work and are broken is we tend to stop trusting them. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, I, I have a check engine light in my car. And it's, it's, it works, but it's broken, okay? Um, it's on all the time. I know why it's on, because I took it to the, the, the place where you take cars, the car place, and um, whatever that thing is called. And, and, I, and I said, can you plug your magic thing in? Because apparently, you know, my car is so high-tech, it has all this Bluetooth and all this, but apparently it's too much to just give me some words on there that say what's broken on the car. No, i got to drive all the way down there and plug the stupid thing in and have the guy plug the thing in, right? But anyways, that doesn't matter. I, plugged, I haven't plugged the thing in. It says, oh, your gas cap's off. Oh, but it's not. But it's not off. It's on. So I tighten it down, and, and the, the engine light goes off once he plugs the thing in. The problem is as soon as I got gas, the engine light goes off again because it's telling me my gas cap is off. But my gas cap's not off, okay? It's not. So, so that's frustrating, but here's the problem. Now I just ignore the check engine light because it's just I know why it's on, but maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe it's trying to tell me, Sam, your engine is going to explode. And I'm just like, no, it's the gas cap. You know, so, so here's, the problem with, here's the problem with things that work, but they're broken. We stop listening to them. We stop trusting them, whether that's a smoke alarm or whether that's, you know, and the, and the key to the check engine line is just put the tape over it, right? Put tape over the check engine line, and then it goes away, you know? This is what we do with our conscience. This is what we do with our conscience. Because it's broken, we tend to either 
listen to it too much or we tend to try to, try to you know, tune it out and start to kind of ignore it. And that's kind of a problem. Um, our conscience, it, it's typically doing one of two things. It's, it's either enslaving us Meaning you need to do more, you need to do more, you're not doing enough, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have said that just constantly. Yes. Any of you guys have had that? Just a running dialogue, everything you say, overthink everything you do, you feel bad about. It's usually doing either that or it's betraying us. It's either enslaving us or it's betraying us. Sometimes our conscience lets us down because we can manipulate it. We can change it to think that something's right that's actually not right. And humans are really good at manipulating your conscience. You know, there's people out there that do really bad things and they think they're good things because they've convinced themselves. It's really interesting. I actually want to open this morning in Psalm 51. Now, we're going to be in Hebrews 9, but I want to open in Psalm 51. And you're familiar with this psalm. It's very famous. And there's a reason I want you to see here, because see, King David was interacting for a lot of his life with a broken conscience. And part of his life, his conscience was seared. Part of his life, he wasn't tuning into the check engine light. He had pulled the smoke detectors right out of the wall. And then the other part of his life, his conscience was eating him alive. And I'll tell you why. Here's the backstory. You know the story. David, God, man after God's own heart. What does that mean? It means that he got God's heart. Okay? David was almost a parable of the New Testament life. His heart was enmeshed with God's mind, and God's mind was enmeshed with his heart. And David, for the most part in his earlier years of life, he just, he just got it. But then something started to happen. David started to drift his conscience started to become less tuned in to what the Lord loved. And you know the story. I don't need to tell you all the details. David sees an attractive woman from his balcony, and he uses the power that was gifted to him to shepherd the people of Israel. He used it to devour one of the sheep. He uses his power. He calls for the woman Bathsheba to be brought into his quarters. He commits adultery with her, right? And then uh, doesn't think much of it. Things kind of go on, and, 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 and then she ends up getting pregnant. So, you know, the next step with sin always is you try to cover it up. So he tries to cover it up. He um, tries to bring her husband home to, to sleep with her and it's not happening. It's not working out. Things aren't happening. So what is he going to do? He finally gets so desperate to cover up his sin that he sends off her husband Uriah to the front and has him murdered, essentially, by the enemy. This is pretty heinous. How could David, God after, man after God's own heart, how could David have gotten to this point? Well, his conscience was, clear, was clearly like the, the tape was over the check engine light, right? But then it kind of gets worse because the prophet Nathan comes to David and he goes, hey, God knows about this and he's not happy with it. And instantly David's conscience comes alive and now it's an overdrive. David realizes what he's done and he realizes that God is not pleased with what he's done. And David sinks into a deep despair, into a dark place because he has realized that not only has he committed adultery, he's committed murder and now, what is he going to do with the weight of that conviction? You ever been so convicted over something that you literally didn't know what to do with it? It was so heavy, you, just, you, you had to do something. So you're just looking for anything. Maybe I need to talk to a counselor. Maybe I need to go confess it to somebody. Maybe I need to talk to a, a, a pastor. You just have so much. So David's just consumed by this grief over his sorrow. But what's he going to turn to? Well, he has special access to the temple, doesn't he? He's the king of Israel. He's got all the money. He's got all the power. He's got the, the, the high priest on speed dial. All he's got to do is call up the high priest and say, hey, I want to sacrifice a thousand bulls today. Why doesn't he just do that? Because God doesn't care. <laughs> and David knows that. A thousand bulls. 
would matter. See, the system, here's what I'm kind of getting at, and here's what I want you to see. The system of religion that David lived within, the system, the covenant of, uh, of, of the old covenant, was not able to handle the level of immorality that David had just stepped into. This wasn't, oops, I, I blew it, here was a sin of omission. This was a, a planned murder and adultery, and David knew that the Mosaic system, the Mosaic covenant of Christ was not adequate. So what is he going to do? Well, Psalm 51 is him crying out to God and appealing to the mercy of God. And all I want you to see is the very last part of it. Verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And if you back up to the beginning of the prayer, here's what David's asking for. He says, have mercy in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew he needed a new heart. He needed heart-level change. He needed deep forgiveness, a forgiveness that he could not find in the old system of religion, the system of religion that he was currently in. So he goes straight to God. He goes straight to God's mercy. Now, here's what I want you to see, and here's how this all kind of ties in to Hebrews chapter 9. Okay? David, as I already said, David knew that the old covenant was not going to cut it. And he could go to the priest and he could make sacrifices and he could do all the things and he still was going to be trapped. Why? Because his conscience was telling on him. This is one of the reasons consciences are so severe because they tell on us. The, the real you knows the real you and the real you tells on you. So David knows, yeah, I can make sacrifices that might, that might make me look good or feel good on the external, but it's not going to change my heart. I'm broken on the inside. What was the answer to David's prayer? What was the answer to Psalm 51? Jesus Christ. Jesus was the answer to Psalm 51. What David is asking for in Psalm 51 only could come through Jesus. And here's why I, I brought you to Psalm 51, because the life and the parable of David's sin is in harmony this morning. It's in harmony with the point that our text is making, that Jesus and Jesus alone is capable of dealing with the stuff that you and I constantly are carrying. Only him. That's the point that our, our text is going to make this morning. Hebrews, if you guys have been with us, been tracking with us, Hebrews is a book written to Jewish Christians, Christians that had uh, a Jewish ethnicity and a Jewish background, and these Jewish Christians are seemingly being tempted to drift away from Jesus back into their old system of approaching God, Judaism. They're tempted to draw back from Christ and to hold loose Christ. And the author of Hebrews is compelling them, is, is calling them to hold fast to Christ and to draw near to Christ because Jesus is the only way that they can truly have salvation. And I think there's a lot of us in this room this morning that have a, a real similar problem to what the Hebrew audience was struggling with. The, the interesting thing about drifting is you don't always notice when you are and we drift, don't we? 
We drift. We drift away from Christ. If I was to sit down and talk to each and every one of you individually and say, how is your walk with Jesus? I know a ton of you would say, I feel like I've drifted. And I just feel like Jesus used to be my everything. I was up in the morning. I was hungry for his word. I was worshiping. Arms were lifted. And now I just feel like I'm in this place where I could go two weeks without reading my Bible. Haven't talked to the Lord in three weeks. I'm just drifting. Hebrews is written to you. Now, some of you guys are drifting and you don't know you're drifting. Some of you guys are like, no, I'm dialed. I do my devotions every morning. But you need to look around because sometimes you don't realize that your heart, like David, you lost your heart. And so Hebrews is written to you. And some of you guys in here this morning have not actually anchored yourself to Christ yet. You're still looking to this world. You're still looking to the systems of this world. You're looking to other religions or you're looking to yourself and you need to cut ties with this world and you need to anchor to Christ. The book of Hebrews is going to call us to that if we listen this morning. It's going to call us to re-anchor our drift back to the person of Christ exclusively. And the author of Hebrews is showing logically and systematically how Jesus is superior to everything in the Old Covenant and has great relevance to us this morning. So let's, let's dive right in. Let me give you a little bit of uh, kind of the flow of the text. We're going to look at chapter 9, verse 1 through 14. And here's basically what the author of Hebrews is going to do. He is going to give us a, a tour of the tabernacle and all of its features and all of its furniture. And it might seem kind of strange. He's going to actually bring us through the tent doors into the holy place and into the holy of holy place, holy, holy of holies. And he's going to allow us to see how it all works. And the reason he's going to do that is because he, he wants us to see that the whole thing, the whole tabernacle, is really just a type. You know what a type is? It's something that's shadowing or foreshadowing something that's greater, a greater reality. He wants us to see that the whole thing's pointing to Jesus, and he wants us to see that the whole thing is inferior. That this whole system, this whole tent, as cool as it was, God's idea, God made it, he gave it to Moses, it was beautiful, it was ornate. It was inferior. It was unable and is unable in any ways to bring us to back to God. And then he's going to bring us to the point where he shows the better priest who went into the more real temple and offered a better sacrifice in order to mediate a better covenant. And that's the good news. So our outline is really simple. We're going to see two big problems and one big solution. So if you want to write that down, two big problems and one big solution. Problem number one is in verse 1 through 9. Here's what he says. And the problem, by the way, problem number one is the presence problem, if you want to write it down. The presence problem. As in, we can't be in his presence. Verse one, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So as good expositors, we should tune in to the word now. Okay, it's a link word. It's letting us know that he's continuing to follow a, a logical thought here. And one of them, I say this all the time, but one of the mistakes we make as Bible students is we, we chop this thing up too small. So he's continuing to argue a bigger thought here. What is the bigger thought? He's continuing to contrast and compare the old covenant, which is the covenant of Moses, to the new covenant, which is the covenant of Christ. Okay? He's comparing these two covenants, and he wants us to see that. And last week, if you remember, he used Jeremiah's prophecy to help us understand a little bit about what the new covenant that we live in actually is. So he's going to continue to make this comparison. And he says in verse 1, again, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So he's trying to get us to see here that there's similarities between the old and new covenant. 
And those similarities are, first of all, place. That, that both covenants are about getting us to a place. And we'll see that uh, in, in a moment. We'll just hold on to that. The second thing is that there is a particularity to how God will be worshipped. So this universalist idea that we just worship God however we want, on my own terms, I meet God how I meet God, I find my own way up the hill, none of that is biblical. In every covenant, God is the one who dictates the terms. God dictated the terms of the old covenant, and he has dictated the terms of the new covenant. Now, here we go on our tabernacle tour. Are you ready? We're going to duck under the tent, and the author of Hebrews is going to give us a 3D description of the tabernacle. Now, some of you guys are new to Christianity. You're like, what the heck is a tabernacle? Well, you're going to find out this morning. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I know all about that. Um, but I just want you to remember, the author here wants you to remember some of the features of this tent, and we'll see why in a minute. Verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence it is called the holy place. So you guys have probably seen this before, maybe in a picture or a model, but the tent, basically, it was an outer courtyard, but the author's not concerned with that courtyard. He's concerned with the tent itself. The tent itself had two chambers, one larger chamber that you would enter through, and then, as we'll see in a minute, a secondary chamber at the back. He first brings us into the first chamber, and this first chamber is called the holy place. Holy Hagiazo means set apart, okay? It just means this place is set apart. This is a set apart place for a particular purpose. In this holy place, we see certain features. We see, first of all, um, the lampstand, okay? You can picture the menorah, these seven uh, branches coming out of the menorah. We see a table, the table of showbread, and on that table would have been 12 loaves of bread that would have been replaced every week by the priests. The priests would have gone in constantly doing these things. We would have seen the altar of incense um, that was constantly burning, particularly when sacrifices were made so that the incense would be mingled with the prayers uh, that were made in the temple. These were each features, and each of them have massive symbolism, and each of them point to Christ. And I'm just not going to go there this morning and explain how each of them are because it's not the point of the passage. So you can do that on your own. Now, verse 3, he takes us into the second chamber. The second chamber, there's a veil between the first chamber and the second chamber. And on that veil, if you study it, you'll find, uh, at least in the temple, there were angels stitched into that veil. Why? Because it was to remind us, to signify that th th this is separation. There is a separation between God and man. It happened in Genesis 3. Remember, God set angels outside the garden to guard the way back into the presence of the Lord. So the tabernacle, in many ways, is a model to remind us of this reality that we are separated from God that we can't just walk right into the presence of the Lord. Now, verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So we have the holy place, and we have the most holy place. Seems a little confusing, but I didn't, you know, that, that's not, you know, maybe they need a branding guy. Um, holy place, most holy place. Okay, in, in the Hebrew language, you say something twice. It's, 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 it's for emphasis. This is the holy, holy place. You got the holy place and the holy, holy place. Okay, uh, and then when, when, uh, when Isaiah goes up to the real throne, it's the holy, holy, holy place. Okay, I'm kind of joking, I'm kind of serious. It, it's, the more times you say it, the more serious it is. So this holy, holy place is even more sacred, and it's in this place we find in verse 3, having the golden altar of incense, which uh, you can study that more on your own. The incense 
altar was not in the holy, holy place. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting why the author, who would clearly know that, puts it in there. Um, I think it's because the incense had to do with the most holy place, but you can study that more on your own. So having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And he doesn't need to speak about these things in detail because he's writing to a Jewish audience, and the Jewish audience knows these things very well, right? But he gives us this description of the holy, holy place, and in the holy, holy place sits God's nuclear box, the Ark of the Covenant. And and the Ark of the Covenant, covered in gold, has a flat seat with nothing on it. Why? Because God is not to be depicted. That would be idolatry. So there's an empty space on the box where God's presence is said to dwell. And it's in that empty space that there's cherubim, golden cherubim with angels over each part of the space, probably said to be protecting that space or worshiping or honoring that space. This is the space that the high priest would go in once a year and sprinkle blood at the Day of Atonement. Inside the box, we're told that there is a, a golden vessel with the manna inside of it, manna taken from uh, the wilderness wanderings, okay, to remind Israel of two things. Number one, God's provision, and number two, their grumbling. Then inside the box, there's Aaron's staff, which... Leviticus, I think, tells us that the staff was sitting in front of the ark, but I think at some point someone just stuck it in there, okay? Um, the staff of Aaron, if you remember the story about that, it was God's way of saying Aaron is the guy. He's the guy I've chosen, Aaron's staff that budded. So these are just things that are in the box that are meant to remind Israel of particular realities and particular lessons. But none of that's really the point. Okay, none of that's really the point. What's the point that we're supposed to see? Well, keep reading, verse 6. These preparations, meaning the whole tabernacle, all of the intricacies of it, all the furniture, all of the dimensions, all of it, Behind the scene, or pardon me, verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. So the outer section, which is called what? The holy place, okay. Um, the, the outer section was always pretty busy with a few priests. They're in there burning the incense. They're in there replacing the loaves. They're, they're in there do, doing priestly duties. He says, these preparations having thus been made by the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, which is called the what? Most holy place or holy of holies, whatever you want to call it. But in the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the author reminds us that Though certain priests were able to go into the holy place, only one priest was allowed to go into the most holy place, and only once a year. And it was on a particular holiday that you might know as Yom Kippur, which is just the Hebrew word for the Day of Atonement. It was a, it was a national holiday that God set apart in order to remind Israel of their need for, for corporate confession and their need for atonement. So every year, once a year, this would happen. The high priest would go in. And it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. And the high priest, it would take him weeks to prepare for this. He would isolate himself, um, kind of like you did when it was COVID and you were going to get on an airplane. You're like, I'm not talking to anyone for a week because I might get COVID and then we'll be able to get on the plane. So kind of like that, the high priest would like barricade himself in the temple because he had to stay ceremonially clean. 
right? If he, if he were to come into contact with a dead body or, or any number of things, he would be ceremonially unclean and unable to go in and make this, this, this offering. So think about this. Out of all humanity, God picks one nation. Out of that one nation, there's 12 tribes. Out of those 12 tribes, you have one tribe selected to be the Levitical tribe. But out of that entire tribe, only a small handful got to be priests. And out of that whole group of priests, only a small handful got to go into the holy place. And out of that small handful, only one person got to go in to the Holy of Holies once a year. What are we supposed to see here? What are we supposed to see? Well, look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates... In other words, by the way that, the, that the, the Holy Spirit led the construction of the tabernacle, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So here we get to the point. The point he's trying to get at is we have a presence problem. The problem is we can't get into God's presence. Only one guy once a year. And even at that, it's not like it's enjoyable He's just worried about getting struck dead, right? Out of all these people, only one person can go in. And he's not even going into the real holy of holies. Remember we learned a couple weeks ago, the whole tabernacle, it was a model. It was a model of something God actually showed Moses. God took Moses and he said, look, this is the real thing, my true throne room. Go make a model of it. Make sure it looks kind of similar. That's what Moses did. So we have a presence problem. The whole tabernacle, the whole point we're supposed to get from that is just how far it is between us and God by nature. Imagine being a Gentile. You don't even get to go to the temple or the tabernacle, right? I mean, you could become a proselyte and you can go through all these rituals. You could be circumcised. You could do all this stuff. You're only getting so far. Even if you're a Jew, you can only go so far. At the end of the day, you're entrusting your entire mediation with God to someone else. We have a presence problem by nature. We can't get to God. And the whole point of the temple and the tabernacle in many ways was to depict that, to show us, man, there's a lot of curtain between me and God. There's a lot of curtain. There's a lot of, of a section and space. And, and the author here uses the... Uh, tabernacle as a, a spatial analogy to see, do you see how far away God is from you? He's far. And this is the thing, this is the system that these Jewish Christians are tempted to go back to. He wants them to be reminded, hey, do you remember how bad that was? It's a presence problem. Humanity knows that they need to get to God. Did you know that? And I want you to remember that when you're evangelizing. Don't assume that the person you're sharing the gospel with isn't actually interested in connecting with God. They may say they're not, but they absolutely are. And, and you got to realize that humans are designed for worship and we're designed to, to climb hills and try to, to transcend to God. My wife and I were watching a documentary about Ed Shireen or something, and he was just playing, he was playing this massive arena, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And Randy just made the perceptive comment. She's like, man, it's kind of like worship, isn't it? It's like everyone's just kind of like, there's this, I mean, this person on stage, and everyone's just focused on him, and there's lights, and it's crazy, and everyone's so excited, and they're like, oh, you know, like very much worship. I'm like, yeah. We like creating worship places. It's no different than our, you know, our pagan ancestors. 
creating temples. Every human that's ever existed has created some kind of a temple, and they've created some kind of a priesthood. Okay, and our priesthood uh, in our culture, it, it's the therapists, it's the culture makers, it's the people in ivory towers. They're, they're telling us how to get to God, except they've said we're God, and we need to you know, transcend ourselves. We need to know ourselves. It's just all a form of religion. So every human knows God's way over there, and I don't know how to get to him, so I have to trust someone. I have to trust a priest. I have to go to a temple. I have to do something because God's far away, and that's the whole point that he's trying to get at. Now, we have a second problem, and that is a conscience problem. Okay, a conscience problem. Look at verse 9. He says, according to this arrangement, that is the arrangement of the Old Covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, note that word, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So here's his big point. His big point is, hey, he's, he's saying to the Jewish Christians, hey, I know you guys are super hung up on this whole temple tabernacle thing. I think, you know, you still think it's pretty cool. Maybe it's better than Jesus. Did you notice that that whole system could do nothing for your conscience? It could do nothing at the heart level that you were looking for, just like David. Did you notice that the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, it did nothing to alleviate the burden of and the weight of your sin? All it did was clean the outside. My, my everyday car that I drive to work, it's a 1997 Toyota Camry. It's got a V6. It's got a sunroof. Thing's a turd. It is. It's got 240,000 miles on it, and it drives okay, but, but it's, it, it's got all kinds of problems. Um, the defrost doesn't work, problem, in the winter. Um, just, you know, you, you can do this, right? Um, the, the key doesn't work on the driver's side. I got to go on the, the passenger side, which people always wonder why. What am, I doing? what am I doing over here? I'm unlocking my car. Um, and the trunk doesn't open. And I got all this stuff in the trunk and it just thumps around all day and I can't get it. It's just in there. I don't know. Hopefully it's not valuable. Hopefully I don't want my kids in there or something. That'd be bad. There's something in there. I don't know what it is. So this car, thankful for it. Um, now I could wash it and wash it and wash it. And I could, I could even paint it. I could get a brand new paint job on it. Doesn't change the nature of the car, does it? He's, what he's saying here is he's saying you can go to the temple and you can offer sacrifices and you can do ceremonial cleansings and you can, you, can, you can do all of these things, everything that the old covenant has offered you, but it will not change the essence of who you are on the inside and your conscience is telling on you. You know you're still you. You can offer a thousand bulls, David, but you know what you did. And that system, in any system of religion, it only, it's a topical cream. You know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes you're really sick, and you got like a high fever, and you go to the doctor, he's like, here, have a topical cream. You're like, no, I need something deeper, please. Give me some antibiotics or something, you know? No, it's a topical. The, The whole temple system, it's just external. It doesn't do anything for the heart. And that's why it did nothing for David. Because it couldn't change his desires. It couldn't change what he knew to be true about himself. Now, I want you to think about this. In verse 9, he says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And I wonder, I wondered this all week. Why did he choose the word conscience? It seems like he could have said, you know, all these sacrifices and gifts and things, you know, they, they can't do anything to remove your guilt. They can't do anything to make you pure. They can't do anything to make you clean. They can't do anything to to propitiate for you. Any of those words would have been fine and true. But for some reason, the author here wants us to think about the conscience. 
and how these rituals and these religious things they just can't get at the conscience. Well, I think the reason he's doing that is because, as I said in my introduction, our conscience has got some problems. Our conscience has got some problems. And I want to talk about what those problems are for just a moment because I want to show how Jesus is the answer to those. What is wrong with our conscience? I told you we all get one when we're born. I told you that ours is all broken. Well, how's it broken? What's wrong with it? Well, there's, there's two ways that our conscience is broken. And I'm getting this directly from Romans chapter 2, in case you're like, Sam, where are you getting this? Um, Romans chapter 2, I, I won't take you there, but I'll just tell you what Paul's getting at. He's indicting all of humanity and saying all of humanity is essentially, um, uh, all of humanity has systematically rejected God and, and without God's grace, we're hopeless. And, and he says, even Gentiles, even Gentiles know because he says their conscience testifies to them that God is real. But then he says this interesting little dichotomy. He says, he says but their conscience either, let me get the language right, their conscience either accuses them or excuses them. That's Romans chapter 2. Paul's language. It, it does one of two things. It either accuses them or it excuses them. And I was thinking about this week. I was thinking, that's exactly what my conscience does. It does one of two things. Either it won't shut up, just constantly accusing me, just telling on me all the time, hey, you're a bad person. Hey, you did bad things. You need to do it. Or it's excusing me. So Paul says the Gentiles, either they tune into their conscience and it shows them that they're a wretch, or they, they get really good at searing it. So I want to talk about those two problems right there, the two problems of the conscience that we have, just, just briefly. Uh, first of all, the accusing conscience, and secondly, the excusing conscience. Let's talk about the accusing conscience. The accusing, accusing conscience sees clearly the reality of our own sinfulness, yet it, it gives us no power to change what it sees right? Uh, the accusing conscience, it's, it's like leprosy. No, no, that, that's the wrong one. It's, it's like vertigo. You guys ever had vertigo? Ver I, I've been dealing with vertigo and, and it's annoying. And it's my brain telling my, or it's, it's, it's my ears sending signals to my brain saying, you're spinning around. And I'm saying, no, I'm not. So what do I do? I'm just I'm spinning and I'm not spinning. Tell myself I'm not spinning. I'm, I feel like I'm spinning. So what do you do? It's, you got you to get the, the crystals in your ears or whatever adjusted. And so our conscience, when it's on overdrive, and some of you guys, I know you, um, you have over, your, your, conscience is, your conscience is on overdrive. It's just telling you all day long, like, you're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible. It, it, all, all day long. That's one of the ways that our conscience is broken. It just, it's just constantly nagging at us over every little thing. It's the accusation of our conscience. The accusing conscience cannot be escaped because it's inside you. Can't get away from it. The accusing conscience asks for repercussions but never gives relief in exchange. Have you noticed that? You did something wrong. You need to do something right. And then you do something right, but then you don't feel relief. You know, some people wonder, how do, how do pagan people do so much good? It's this reason right here. Just they feel bad. I feel bad about doing stuff, so I'm going to go give to charity. But then I give to charity, and all of a sudden, I still don't feel good. I feel good about myself now, but I still feel bad, so I'm going to go give more to charity. This is how religion works. This is the only reason the religion business is in full swing, because people have overactive consciences. Our consciences are broken. They're constantly telling us we need to do more. But the relief never comes. Have you noticed that? You notice when you give in to a, a sort of a guilt-based response, like, I feel bad about what I did once, so now I need to go do a bunch of good. It never, you never get better. I, I had a, a, a friend once who, um, he was a serial adulterer. He had 
cheated on his wife multiple, multiple, multiple times. And, and he did it all while being a leader, you know, a leader in church for, for 10 years, preaching and all this stuff. And, and uh, God really helped him, and he had a complete change in his life, praise the Lord. But I got to sit down with him at lunch, and I just said, bro, how did you do that for 10 years? How did you get up and preach while you were cheating on your wife? He's like, it, it's easy. I just did a lot of good stuff until I would feel better for a minute, but then I always had to get out and do more good stuff. He's like, I convinced myself that my good was outweighing my bad. I convinced myself that if I, just, if I just got enough people saved, if I got enough people into the kingdom, then God was gonna tolerate my sin. So what's he doing in that moment? He's appeasing his conscience. Guys, that's, that's religion. That's what religion is. Just one more sacrifice. Just one more sacrifice. That, then I'll feel better. And we all do it. You sin, you're like, oh, shoot. I gotta read my Bible in the morning. You read your Bible in the morning, okay, I feel a little better. What's that all about? It's called legalism. It's false religion. It's tuning into your broken conscience. It's letting your broken conscience tell you that you can do stuff to make up for the stuff that you shouldn't have done. And it's totally out of whack. Now, the second way our conscience can be broken, I think, is actually worse than the first. The second way is the excusing conscience. The excused conscience is lied to and trained to wrongly accept that which is wrong. So if you get tired of your conscience nagging you, what you can do is you can start to change it. And you can start to tell it and program it to tell you that bad things are good things. And people get really good at that. They get really good. This is, this is referred to sometimes as the seared conscience. Uh, the Bible uses the picture of leprosy to picture sin, and it's a really good picture. The reason is because one of the, one of the problems with leprosy is it, it starts to attack your nervous system, so you don't feel things anymore. So you might stick your hand in the fire. You know, you might be, you know, you might chop off a finger and not even know. You, you might be out in the sun too long getting burned. You don't even know. So lepers are famous for having, um, you know, missing limbs and missing fingers and their skin is just, a, because they don't, they no longer have feeling. And this is what we do. If, if we say, you know what, I can't handle this nagging conscience anymore. So instead of tuning into it, I'm going to tune out of it. We put the tape over the, over the, the dash light. We take the smoke detectors out. Forget it. And then it gets even worse. We start to convince ourselves that the bad things we're doing are actually noble. And that, our culture has gotten really good at this. Have you noticed? I'm pro-choice. What a noble thing. You know, we're, we're about inclusivity. Okay, what do, you, what do you mean by that, though? Inclusivity, that's a biblical principle. But what you've done is you've actually baptized immorality and convinced yourself that it's morality. It's, it's what we do. It's, it's how we deal with our conscience problem that we have. You know, you ever have an alarm clock um, that won't go off or it won't stop going off? You can't get it to turn off? I've had that, I've had that before. I think it's usually because I was just too sleepy to figure out what button it. So you're just like sticking pillows over it. Like if I can't get it to turn off, I'm just going to keep putting pillows over it until I can sleep. It's what most of the world's doing. Their conscience is screaming at them. You're condemned. And, and, and they can't appease it, so they just start to tune it out. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Because then, when your check engine light really is on, you don't see it. You don't see it. So, this is the problem with the conscience. Now, what is the solution to the conscience? And this is where the author is going to take us next. Here we come to the solution in verse 11. Here's the good news. Are you ready? The good news in verse 11. 
See, what, what he wants them to feel and what I think he wants us to feel is the tension this morning of man, no matter how much I do, it's just not enough. And, 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 and no matter how much I, I tune out this feeling that this is wrong, I still know it's wrong and it's killing me. He's trying to get us to that point, that place. You know what that space is called? It's called the space that the gospel can actually come in. It's the space where you realize, man, I need something better than a tabernacle. I need something better than a high priest, an earthly high priest. I need better news this morning. So here it comes. Here's the good news. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let me break it down for you. He's saying, hey, Jesus, who's the better high priest of the better order, went into a real temple, not the little model temple that can't really save you. He went into the real temple, the real holy, holy, holy space where God the Father presides, and he went in not without atoning work, not without blood. He went in with his own blood, meaning he gave his life to be the lamb, the, the lamb that could satisfy and appease the wrath of God that was meant to be poured out on the world, he went in with his own blood and he made final and lasting and complete and total atonement so there's no need for a priest to go in on your behalf again because he already did it. He did it once. He did it fully. He did it totally. And then he mediated a new and better covenant with better promises that are not contingent on your ability to hold up your end of the bargain. God made covenant with himself. It's a covenant of grace. And now by faith and trust, you are brought into that covenant and Jesus's perfection is imputed to you. What about my conscience? What about my conscience? What do I do with it? Well, I want you to see the good news here. Let me give you the solution to the problem here. The solution, first of all, to our accusing conscience. Jesus is the solution to our accusing conscience. How? Because by the adequacy of his redeeming blood, every time your broken conscience puts you back in the courtroom, you say, it's adjourned. Case closed. Now, hear me. The gospel doesn't kill the conscience. What does the gospel do? It fixes the conscience. It repurposes the conscience. So that when I do sin, and my conscience says, that was sinful, 
What does the gospel give me the freedom to do? To come to the throne of God, of mercy, and receive grace. To receive forgiveness. To, to know that I'm covered so I don't have to hide it. I don't have to outwork it. I don't have to outpace it. I come to Christ, my priest, and I say, I sinned. My conscience told on me, and I come to the altar because there's forgiveness. It's called freedom. You get a new master. And this new master isn't there screaming at you day after day, telling you, do more, do more, do more. This master is kind. He bids you come to his altar because there is sufficient sacrifice for you. He says, come, bring your sin. Confess it. Be free of it. Be rid of it. Be done with it. The gospel provides you the safety and the covering to say, I have failures. I have sin. The tabernacle, the religious system, it cannot do that. This is why I think the author said, Jesus and Jesus alone can purify the conscience. Only Jesus, only what he has done can dig deep enough into the heart to actually give you the freedom that you're longing for. Some of you guys in here are just enslaved with guilt. You want to be free so bad. And you just think, maybe if I just do a little more. No. Believe the gospel today. It's his righteousness alone that will give you the freedom and the peace that you want so bad. And you don't just believe it once. You believe it every day, every moment, every second. That's what Christian life is. It is believing the gospel over and over again. So Jesus is adequate to deal with our accusing conscience. He's also adequate to deal with our excusing conscience. He's adequate to deal with our excusing conscience because his death, because of his death, we are given new life and we're given a new set of desires. You know, when I was not a Christian, I wanted so bad to be right with God. The problem was I really loved my sin and I loved sin more than I loved God. And so I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I wanted to not love sin, but I didn't want to not love sin enough to, to really let go of it. And it, and it was this cycle, this sort of shame cycle that I was kind of constantly in. And what I needed was I needed God to penetrate through all of my lies that I had told myself and, and through all of the, the red tape that I put around my heart. I needed God to penetrate through all that and I needed him to change my desires because I knew I couldn't do it. I knew God wanted me to be holy. I knew God wanted me to, to, to be all in and he wanted me to follow him. But I'm like, I don't know how to be that. I don't know how to do that. Because all I want is sin, and all I want is myself. I want to just glorify myself. It's all I care about. So God, how am I supposed to do this? And then in, a, in an instant, when I got saved, it clicked for me that God said, no, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to change your desires, and then I'll change your sin. I'm going to change what you want, and then I'll change what you do. And that's what happens when you get saved. God comes in and he says, no, I'll rearrange your heart in such a way where my priorities become your priorities, and where sin becomes less attractive. And then we, we grow up into that through lots of failure and lots of tripping and lots of grace and lots of brothers and sisters that point us back to the gospel every time we fail. It's what we need. It's what the body of Christ exists for. A place to come to a kingdom of priests that just point us back to Jesus and go, hey, you're, you're believing in false religion. Believe the gospel. 
So the excusing conscience is made awake to our own hypocrisy and to our own lies that we tell ourselves, and then it changes our desires from the inside out. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus, because Jesus didn't just go into the temple to pay for our sin. He went into the temple to send his spirit so we could be born again. Because otherwise, we'd just be a bunch of forgiven people that still want to go live in sin. But rather, the spirit of God changes us from the inside out. We're born again. This is the Christian reality. And it's all because of Christ. It's all because of what he's done. And that's why the author here is, I think, almost kindly shouting at the audience saying, don't go back. Don't go back. You want to go back to the tent with the veil? The veil was torn. What are you doing? Go to Christ. Hold fast. Draw near. It's incredibly good news. This is what David needed to hear. And Jesus was the answer to David's prayer. Psalm 51. When David, so overwhelmed, so broken by his own sin, he came to God, threw himself at the altar of mercy, and he said, God, I just need a clean heart. And I think, I think if God could, could clearly uh, speak in that moment, he would have said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one. Jesus died for David. Did you know that? Did you know Jesus died for all the Old Testament saints? Their faith was forward. Their faith was in future grace. Now, I want you to see one more thing here. I promise I'll make it really quick. We see one more good news thing in, in our text, and that is this idea of presence. See, we're supposed to see that in the tabernacle, we can't get into the presence of God. But there's good news, and the good news is that Christ has not only torn the veil on the earthly temple, but that there is a time coming where God's space will invade our space. It's really good news. Um, if you go and study it, you'll find that the holy of holies, the dimensions of it, are a cube. Now, the tent itself is long, rectangular, but the holy place, the holy of holies, the dimensions of it are a cube. And then when you go to Revelation, and you read this thing that's going to happen where Jesus comes back, and when Jesus comes back, he is going to regenerate the earth, heavens and the earth, and he's going to create an interface somehow between heaven and earth. He's going to make new Jerusalem. He's going to make this eternal heaven. And this eternal heaven, you know what the dimensions of it are? It's a cube much bigger, but it's a cube. What's the point? The point is that when we see the Holy of Holies, we're meant to go, oh, Jesus tore the veil so he could get out of there, but there's a time coming where God is going to make this earth the new Holy of Holies. And Christians don't talk about that that much, but it's really cool, and it's really good news. Let me read it to you. I'll just end here. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not in some dark, dinky tent. No, the tent is now God's dwelling place where we are with him. Pretty cool. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then skip down to 27. And I saw no temple in this city. John notices. He's a good Jewish guy. There's no temple. 
Where's the temple? For its temple, listen, is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's Jesus. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Guys, this is our future hope. So there's good news for now, and there's good news for later. The good news for now is that the veil has been torn. We can have the presence of God now. The good news for later is that Jesus is coming and the Holy of Holies will become this earth. His space and our space together forever, fused eternally. And we won't need a temple because we'll be in his presence. Let me just close with this. These things that we've mentioned, they they actually become really good telltale signs of where we're at in our faith. I want to challenge you this morning. If your conscience is in overdrive, it could be a sign that you're not believing the gospel as much as you should be. Okay, and I'm not just saying, when I feel bad about something, don't, don't tune into that. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation, right? If your conscience is in overdrive, if you're constantly in the courtroom, you need to believe the gospel. You need to re-anchor yourself to this reality that Jesus, he already went into the tent. If your conscience is seared, look for that. You, find, you start finding yourself sinning in ways that you used to think were not okay and all of a sudden you seem to be okay with it. You start to, to notice the lack of conviction. Your conscience is not working properly. It's a good sign that you need to come back to your high priest. You need to believe the gospel and you need to see that Jesus died so that you could be free from your sin, so that you could serve him. If distance from God is a reality, that's a tell sign. That's a telltale sign that maybe you don't really believe that you can go into the holy place. If it's been a few weeks since you've even thought about talking to God or opening up his mind, his word, maybe you're not really believing that you can go and be in the presence of God. You need to believe that. Hebrews reminds you to believe that. And lastly, this is just a bonus. If you have a lack of anticipation for what we just read in Revelation 21, check your heart. You might not be anchored as tightly as you think you are to Christ. The Christian should be dead focused, not only on what God is doing now, but what God is going to do in the future. Those are all signs of health. So some of you guys here this morning need to take your pulse. You say, how tightly am I clinging to Christ? How thankful am I for this reality, what he's done? Some of you guys in here this morning are not anchored to Christ at all. You're anchored to the world. I'm just going to invite you this morning to cut that rope, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Talk to me. Talk to anybody around. We were going to do baptisms this week, (laughs) but thank you, State of Oregon, for uh, creating some kind of law that canceled the order for the little hot tub because apparently it's not the right power percentage or whatever. I don't know. Uh, Oregon passed some law about hot tubs. and um, So we're going to do baptisms next week. Um, and we'll find a different source of water. Uh, so there's more time. There's more time. If you're like, I want to get baptized, we want to talk to you. We want to talk through that. But there's an invitation this morning. The gospel is good news, and it's good news for you if you put your trust in Christ. Amen? Let's all stand. <clears throat>